Deezer Originals Trailblazers James Lavelle Hi, my name's Eddie Temple-Morris and welcome to another episode of Trailblazers, the podcast that goes deep into the lives of dance music's most impressive movers and shakers. Now, in these strange times of isolation and separation, it falls to me to introduce each episode of the new season. And this episode sees Nick and I talk to James Lavelle, the man from Uncle, if you will. Now, James is a real hero of mine, and it feels slightly weird saying that because he's younger than me. But as you will hear in this look at one of the most fascinating men in music, he started very, very early. This was recorded in March 2019, so please bear that in mind as we dive deep into the mind of the master of Mowax. Trailblazers. When Nick and I started Trailblazers, this man was the second name on our first wish list after Gary Newman, but he was busy making the road part one. He is a true musical renaissance man, the founder of Mowax, the coolest record label of the 90s, legendary DJ, driving force behind Uncle, A&R man extraordinaire, producer, singer, art, style and culture curator, and probably, if we're honest, the fucking coolest guy we've talked to on Trailblazers, and that's the first <laughs> time that I've sworn in an intro but that's how strongly I feel for James Lavelle uh, Welcome, welcome James oh, I find, I, How do I, how do, what do I say <laughs> Anything's going to be a disappointment God, Check is in the post <laughs> uh, well, you know what? He gives I, good intro yeah. I give good intro but you know what I've, I, I just, just want to know it. what Gary, Gary Newman got then got <laughs> <down>. <laughs> he, got, he got a good intro yeah, as well But you know I'm calling it like I see it There's oh, nothing, no, you know, kind. there's nothing factually incorrect there, correct me if I'm wrong I wish I felt like that in the morning <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, every day. legend, you know, yeah. it feels like shit in yeah, the morning. I really, <laughs> really wish I felt like that in the morning, especially on a Monday, but anyway. Okay, well, it's tradition for me to uh, to give the big up at the beginning and then for Nick to uh, fire the first question. Bring so. it back down to reality. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, they just weren't that good. <laughs> I'm, no, no, I'm going I'm to dive in. There's, there's yeah. a lot of very interesting stuff that you do and, and you've done. So first thing I wanted to say was with, with all of this stuff, there's DJing, there's playing live, there's there's signing artists. Where, where, where do you find the, the greatest enjoyment out of that the sort of plethora of stuff that you do and you've been engaged with? I think just making stuff. Making stuff. Yeah, I, right. sort of getting an idea in your head and eventually seeing it come to fruition, whatever that may be, um, whether that's working on a record or something more visual or, or, or whatever. But I love making stuff and I love the idea of the start to the end and that process mm. you know and sort of coming up with something an idea and actually then it materialising and I think mainly I love collaborating with people mm. I, I think I've never been one that's great with solitude mm. um, which a lot of great artists are mm. um, <clears throat> and I sometimes wish I was one of those artists, you know, in, in the sense of, uh, I don't know, let's say as an example, a, a, a DJ Shadow or a, yep. a Noel Gallagher where they can yep. kind of just go and do, you know, you can sit on a guitar and write a song or yeah. you can go and program and make your own record. I've mm-hmm. never been great at sort of being kind of on my own in that respect. Yeah. Um, I love, uh, yeah, so I love working with people, but I, I just love the idea of, I think it's this sort of daydreaming kind of idea of sort of you sit there and you think about these ideas and then you try and make them happen. So I, I don't know if it's sort of like being an inventor or something, I wouldn't, you know, in that weird way of sort yeah. of, I don't know, a lot of, I think, I think the process of making 
records, especially, and, and, and a lot to do with art, has changed a lot in the last so, so, decade. So, yeah, so then in terms of making stuff, which which areas are most gratifying <laughs> it, now? It, because it, it's, it's not, it's, 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 it's overall, but in the sense that I think that we all grew up with, you'd sit there in a, in, and you'd come up with an idea. Right. And that idea then kind of amazing, either would materialise or not. Mm. I think... Now we're in a lot more of a sort of, there's a lot of fabrication to the idea. Yep. I'm not saying with everything, but a lot of it is. Just, I think very much in the music business it is. And do you think we've we've lost... Uh, absolutely. Right. <laughs> Whatever your question was, I'm going to say absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to interrupt And, you and that's not about, you know, being old, which I am guessing. But I think that, I think that there was a different process the way that things were made. And I yeah. think that right now, generally, not 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 entirely, but generally, it's very it, we, we are more manufactured in the process of creativity than we ever have been. Yeah, you can see that in a film. Yeah, and you can see that in music as examples. Mm. I think maybe not so much when you're talking about the inverted commas arts, i.e., mm. a painter, because. It, it, people seem to be a little bit more that that world you know an artist I, a sculptor or a painter seems to be a little bit more like it still was back in the day Yeah. but what I'm saying is that it was very much a sort of kind of it was a bit ridiculous and it was a bit sort of Alice in Wonderland and it was a bit like we're going to try we're going to create something here rather than you know algorithms and stats, you know, and stats. Yeah. But, you know as an example you know I remember when I signed DJ Shadow, people turned around to me and said, why would anybody want to listen to an instrument, instrumental hip-hop record? Now, my answer was like, well, what about Beethoven as an instrumental record? <laughs> yeah. Floyd as examples. Yeah. But why the not? fact is that nobody quite knew what to do with it. Yep. But you still did it. Yep. And, and it then had, for my world, being involved with somebody like that, had a huge impact. I just don't know how much of that happens so much within the industries that we, we, I, we grew up I with. I personally think it's moved, and I think technology is now the place. Dictating. Well, it's the place where people are doing stuff rather than music. You know, oh, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, like yeah. Absolutely. People yeah, who are yeah, building yeah, 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 apps. Yeah, yeah. These yeah. are the ones where we go, well, there isn't a roadmap. Yeah, maybe we absolutely. do this. Can we do it? Let's yeah. make it available in a sort of basic form, and maybe people are like, I think technology has become that area where there is more interesting innovation maybe and maybe music just doesn't have the there's, same there's, degree there, there of seems to finally become this sort of musical formula in, and I'm talking about much more in the in the commercial end of the music business yeah. um and I noticed the other day when I was reading my news feed, as everybody does, you know, Warner Brothers have signed some algorithm yep. to make records. And you're yep. suddenly like, <laughs> yeah. but what I, but then I told my friend, I was like, you know, so I was like, so on, you know, when I get my Spotify new releases yep. thing, on the, you know, whatever your kind yep. of music radar, yeah. I'm like, but why haven't I not got all the records I like in the radar? So that the algorithms don't actually necessarily no, work. No, they don't. I very rarely actually in my new Music Friday get a record that I'm discovering. Mm. And actually half the records that I, I've listed that I want to listen to that week, I, they're not in there. Well, for, hopefully technology can assist but not replace. Yeah, you know, and, and the role for curators like yourself will will always, there always will be well, a role, so. we hope. But I, I just find it interesting how, an algorithm. Know, in many ways, how the how records are made because yeah. I think, you know, yes, of course, if you if you... 
you get a stat, for instance, in in the digital world where it's like, okay, this record's been played 50 million times, we're going to sign it. Yep. That it makes sense in a certain way, but I don't think. It, but it's a very different way than when we signed records. Sure, I actually think in a certain way you kind of went against that a bit. You were like, "Yeah, I know they're really popular, but I don't." But so's lots of bands like that. I want something different. Oh, sure. And I think that most of the record labels and the artists that we really gravitated towards were artists that were not actually part of that rhythm generally yeah and occasionally I mean, it would happen occasionally you know? but so often not i mean quite often the big bidding war thing yeah, was a disaster don't, don't remember bands like and uh, you know menswear as an example in the 90s or yeah. you know bands where you know somebody suddenly was millions of pounds paid for yes. a band and yes. didn't do anything sure but the weird ones you know from let's say from your career doing yes. something like the prodigy yeah through to an artist like a dj shadow yeah through to a, a massive attack yeah. or a bjork they weren't records where it was was kind of like no, no. They, they crept up on you and, and you were allowed Absolutely to have a good. discovery process and there, was no, an incubation, there was an incubation there yeah. that's something yeah. that's really I mean I think a now. great example of that is actually some of the biggest pop stars that we see in our in our lifetime mm. you know um, David Bowie is a great example of that yep. five albums in before he had a had a, yep. had a big record yeah. Elson John was five albums in pretty much before he had a big record yeah, wow. Kate Bush was incubated Kate Bush for years. was the other yeah. person I was going to say mm. didn't happen mm. for, to a third album yes and so it's you know it's that language is is it, it you know and lest we forget actually something that I often refer to I I mean I, I if you had done a survey and asked people what kind of artist they want they wouldn't have have said yeah we want a ginger kid he needs to be from Suffolk maybe he can sort of you know a white boy it, 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 that wouldn't sound like the biggest artist in the world but Ed Sheeran is yeah. one of the biggest artists in the world um but he again comes from he, he isn't the he isn't no, exactly. I, I, yeah, he isn't totally. what. He yeah, isn't yeah, what. Yeah, yeah. What really the algorithms would have predicted yeah. to become the biggest, yeah, yeah. one of the biggest stars in the world. An algorithm's yeah. never going to be able to feel. An algorithm is only as good as the human that programmed it in the first place. And and, it, and surely these things have got to be fed, continue to be fed by curators, by yeah. by by people like us and lots of people like us that, mm. that that are going to you know give it some some emotions some because otherwise it's just all numbers in a machine. Yeah. <laughs> we're yeah. all we're all lost. But this is we're going down a world. Hole here. We are, We're here Sorry. for a reason. No, no, I knew this is going to be a good one. Yeah. So, well, let's let me rewind the clock. Let me rewind the clock back to the beginning of, of you, really. And we could mm. uh, we could go back way further because I happen to know, for the most bizarre reason, that you are related to one of King Henry VIII's wives. Right? Supposedly, yes. Yeah, I mean... Well, the, that, that would be a first... I mean, if, we, if we're scrolling back that I think far. I'm here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's one of the wives that survived, by the way. Yeah. Is, you know, yeah. 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 Beheaded, beheaded, yeah. survived. Yeah. Died, died, beheaded, yeah. beheaded, yeah. survived. Yeah. Divorced, beheaded, yeah. survived, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so Lavelle Parr was the, Parr the beginning dynasty, of... Yeah. yeah was, but it's my mother's side, it's Smith Parr. Right, right, yeah. there you go. But so, so where did it all start for James Lavelle then, many centuries later? I think um, I was always very obsessive as a kid. My father was, uh, uh, by profession, was a lawyer, but by love was a musician, a brilliant musician, an incredible jazz musician and folk musician. Wow, and where was this happening? So he grew up in Ireland, and when he was um, first started off playing folk, he was 
involved with people like the Dubliners. My grandmother was an incredibly uh, well-respected cellist um, who then moved her and her children, uh, moved to England to pursue that, married um, my father's father, who was a singer on Radio 2. His best friend was Tony Hancock. <laughs> and uh, he was an opera singer. And uh, unfortunately, he died when my, my, my father and my uh, uncle were very young. And because she was a musician and Irish, and you know, yeah. if you go back to the fifties, it wasn't the best thing to be Irish and mm. then a woman and mm. then a musician. Yeah, a musician. So yeah, yeah. to survive that, she was very hardcore with my father and my uncle about not pursuing being musicians. Um, uh, who then both went on. My father, my my father became a lawyer. My my uncle became a surgeon, and um, but always pursued music as part of their. The, the, that was the the lifeblood of the family right. from that side. My my mother was an artist. She went to the Ruskin in Oxford. Oh wow! Yeah. So I grew up in Oxford, and and so as a young child, my my life was sort of spent going to the Ashmolean, the Museum of Modern Art, etc., with my mother, and going to see my father playing in uh, in jazz bands from more um, abstract to more big band and you know the icing on the cake was being taken up to places like Ronnie Scott's when you were like eight nine when in those days you could do that you know yeah Yeah. Um, and uh, so and and then my grandmother taught me cello from the age of about eight Wow, so you really were surrounded yeah. by and immersed yeah, in yeah. every aspect of art almost for, through, from, from yeah. when you were an embryo. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and ironically enough, in many ways, understanding that more now than at the time, yeah. you know, as because as you get older and you start sort of looking back and also because you get asked these questions all the time, you start re- starting to sort of think, re- about think about it more. Because in many ways, I also, my, my journey was also a reaction against a lot of, stuff with my family as 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 it is in many ways when you're a child of course yeah um and so i studied cello my my first love my father studied greek classics at oxford and so my first love was very much based on my father was mythology and greek greek mythology my second thing was getting into being a musician and cello and then i discovered kung fu and just destroyed it all <laughs> um, and through Kung Fu um, that was a lovely little era the sort of, we're talking Bruce Lee yeah, and yeah, all yeah, that but you've got to remember that you know martial arts were very synonymous with black music yeah. so you know you've, they just were it was a big thing you know it was like funk hip hop and martial arts was a big thing when I grew up so part of that journey of going to do martial arts and I grew up in the middle class part of town but I had to go from North Oxford to, to Blackbird Lees and Cowley to do what I was doing so you entered into a different world and that world was a bit more um, it was a bit more bad boy it was a bit more it was more working class it was a bit and it was just more bad boy and and what records did the bad boys like they're like hip hop records and you know and 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 the 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 early days of sort of acid house so that was kind of my journey really and and also just growing up in as a as a teen as a young kid in in england in the um in the early 80s i suppose was being exposed to hip hop and and for some reason having had this sort of classical background i went the other way and rather than you know every kid when i was at school was sort of into either pop 
as you were. Or there was this sort of, especially in, in North Oxford, there's this sort of intellectualization of sort of being into classic old rock. You know, people were listening to Pink Floyd and Jimi Hendrix and the Beatles, which there's nothing wrong with that. But when you're 11 years old, 10 years old, I don't know, when you hear, when you see Bambata or Grandmaster Flash on, on top of the pops, why would you want to... That was new. That was mm. that was like science fiction, and I, I loved science fiction as well. So it sort of that was kind of my journey, and 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 um, and then I ended up, you know, working in music. Really. Yeah. Well, we'll get. Let's not get too ahead of ourselves. Let's rewind it to when you were really you were just sponging it all in. Was there a tune that kind of um, well, my dad, that dad, you remember right, right from when you were really really young that you yeah, got my, off your parents? I mean, my dad was was you know, insanely into music, you know, and it was that era where you'd have the hi-fi, the multi-hi-fi system, you know. Yes, of course. The big thing every, you know, sort of twice a year or once a year would be your dad coming back with a new car and a new (laughs) (laughs) hi-fi. And that was where you had, you know, the, 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 you know, the twin tape deck and the and everything was there and it was light up and the blue lights and it was, you know, as a young child, exciting. it was amazing, exciting. This is pre-really computers, you know. Yeah, so. yeah, of course. And my dad would, you know, was obsessed with, with the hi-fi and playing you know, records. You know what, I've never really thought of that, but that, that the, the hi-fi system was like our equivalent of the... Of a computer thing, we didn't have a computer, so the the, yeah. the most exciting technology that we technology got was like, yeah, well, you was, can press these buttons and yeah. you can record something. And if, you yeah. had a, if you had a graphic equaliser, with yes. little things, so cool. Yes. You know? yes. Um, so I was very exposed to music, and my father was very into across the board from rock to classical to jazz, you know. And so there was a lot of sort of Art Blakey. There was a lot of Queen. I remember. Um, there was a lot of sort of a lot of Brahms and Beethoven and da da da. But I think one record that really I kind of sum up for that period that really touched me that my father would play was Samuel Barber Adagio for strings. Mm. And I think ironically enough, through my career, I've had this huge sort of love of classical elements within my records. So I kind of feel like it must have come from that, and also studying the cello with my. Grandmother. So I, I think, you know, I'd say that or Stevie Wonder was a big thing in the house as well. Stevie, I, I remember my dad constantly playing Stevie Wonder, which was mind blowing as well. I think I, th- I think it's got to be uh, Barber's Adagio for strings because. You, you know, you've always been a sucker for the strings. You're, you're yeah, so famous yeah, yeah. for, you know, all of your, we'll get to this later, but, you know, you, your relationship with strings has, has been, you know, so so inspiring for me and many other, you know, lots of other producers. So let's let's go there. Okay, great. Trailblazers. James Lavelle. So we all saw this coming. James Lavelle's first record is one of the most beautiful uh, string arrangements ever. Um, so, James, you're deeply involved, um, not professionally, but personally. You know, you're surrounded by and immersed in music. And uh, you, 
every kind of music. But like you said earlier, um, you, when you sort of nutshelled your early life, you you got uh, attracted to, for various reasons, the sort of bad boy end of it. You said through Kung Fu. So, yeah, tell us a bit about your, uh, your sort of initiation into, uh, I guess, music of black origin, because you're a white boy in Oxford. Yeah, um, I think school, going to my second school and walking in and seeing kids break dancing. <laughs> so I was about eight when that happened because I went to three you know in England you kind of either go to two or three schools so um, and just seeing just seeing visually seeing that and also sonically and those and and that was um, the very beginnings of hip hop where it was electro so records like Egyptian Lover um, and uh, you know Pac-Man and these kind of weird electronic records of people dancing and the you know Tashini tracks I remember Puma Dallas, Tashini tracksuits, and uh, Ghetto Blasters. Yes. And then BMXs. It was all about the mongoose or the aero, you know. Um, yeah. And that was the visual. That was, the, the, that was the first time that I, I, I kind of feel that I engaged with something visually that took me, that, that you just wanted to be a part of, that transcended everything you'd ever experienced as a yeah. child before. And you've got to remember in those days, you know, England to me always felt very black and white you know when you're in the 80s but at the beginning of the 80s like any era at the beginning of a gen of a of a, of a decade you're still in the era before mm. so it was kind of like the 70s a little bit you yeah. know and it's like you know farrah's and yes yeah. you know maybe you're lucky you had a le shark you know, you had a Le Shark shirt, even if you wanted a cost, you can afford it, so you'll have a Le Shark. That was about the height of it, you know. Yeah. And if you were lucky, you got flecked farrers, which meant you had little <laughs> coloured bits in your trousers, you know. Um, and, and that was kind of the, you know, and then suddenly you see this thing where it's like, it's like alien. It was like science fiction, you know. It and was had gra graffiti. Colourful, it was expressive, it was a language which was, you wanted to, you know, you, you you, you, the, the the English language was a lot more traditionally well spoken in those days. My mother, you know, I I have this thing with my mum because she'd always be like, "What what are you saying?" You know, speaking <laughs> English, you know, yeah. and that was the kind of first time I think where where in many ways that's sort of the the for me anyway the language was changing. Yeah, and there was this became this sort of street jive, you know, this American yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, words, you know, like fresh. Yeah, yeah, know, yeah, and, and dope. And was graffiti you know. part of that? Oh, yeah, because absolutely. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Can't really imagine your name without it being in a graffiti Oh, yeah, so style. it was graffiti. It was, it was obsessing over... You know, you couldn't see it on television apart from occasionally on Top of the Pop. So it was, it was VHS bootleg cassettes of Wild Style, mm. you know, and, and, you know, there was a very famous TV show that came out a little bit later called Bombing, which was on British television. But before that, yeah, it was things, seeing things like Wild Style, seeing even, even Breakdance, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Were you hearing the, the soundtrack on the radio? Were you listening no, to... No, because you couldn't, you know, Radio 1, I, I was in Oxford, so you, you... And this is pre, before I was that aware of what was going on in London or whatever. Mm. So, so you might, because somebody would have an older brother, get mm. a cassette yeah. from London. And it might be a, I don't know, you know, it would it would even be pre Westwood. So he was doing, he was playing before Westwood on radio hip hop. God, I, I, I've gone blank. Um, there was there was a couple of DJs just before Westwood mm. who were playing on, yeah, kind of LW, yeah, LWR, yeah, it was LWR and stuff like that. And then you'd have 
I suppose just weird. You, you just compilations of Maybe mastermind guys. Yeah, yeah. Sound system like dudes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then actually, I mean, the big street thing was street sounds. sounds. Yeah, I, I knew so it, street yeah. sounds was yes. the kind of holy grail because street sounds would was a compilation that would come out every few months that would basically put together all of the import 12 inches American releases that weren't being released domestically really mm. and that was your kind of holy grail for yeah. getting this music and, mm. and, and it gets, gets referenced quite a lot actually in, in these Trailblade, Trailblazer yeah. shows doesn't it it really was an important yeah, one yeah I think Morgan Khan was People. one of those first great curators yes you know? and it kind of gave you the information and it and and the record was really well put together and it looked cool graphically looked cool, of course yeah and 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 also, it was very cassettes dominated in those days. You know, mm. remember, like you know, when you're nine, ten, you know, you're not, you don't have the money to really go and buy a vinyl record, particularly yeah, you might get something for your birthday or yeah. Christmas. Mm. You know, but that was my first kind of real experience of it. Uh, you know? Excellent. And, and what was the record that yeah. uh, that sort of? I mean, there were so many best. records, but for some reason, the record that always kind of hit me that I remember so much is Dougie Fresh, the show. Yeah. Which, ironically enough, has a, a verse um, in it by, you know, an English an English rapper. You know? Slick yeah. Rick. Slick Rick. Slick you know, Rick. Who is uh, one of the greatest MCs of all time. Mm. But, uh, <laughs> but I think that, you know, there were a lot of records at the time, Beastie Boys records. Yeah. There were a lot of electro records, you know. But for some reason... I've got the seven inch of Dougie Fresh, yeah. and I don't have many seven inches of hip hop records. I have twelve inches, yeah. and I bought it as a pop record. Yeah, I bought it in the charts. You know, I bought it in as you did in those days where you walk into an H and B or an R price or whatever, sure. and the first money, wall yeah. would be the seven inch wall. Yes. you know, and so. That record just has, for some reason, just has a very personal thing for me. It's, it's a great record. Yeah. Let's let's hear and it. And actually, sorry to oh, interrupt. Yeah. The production in it is quite extraordinary. If you if you if you go back to that era of records, great. You know. Let's let's hear it. Trailblazers, James Lavelle. <laughs> oh my God. Excuse me, Fresh. Yes. Have you ever seen a show with fellas on the mic with one minute rhymes that don't come out right? They fight. They never write. That's not polite. Am I lying? No, you're quite right. Well, tonight, on this very mic, you're about to hear, we swear, the best star rappers of the year. So, so, cheerio, yell, yeah. scream, bravo. Also, if you didn't know, this is called The Show. So we are with uh, James Lavelle, and that is, as he says, an amazingly produced hip-hop record. Um, so I guess there's not a lot of time between, you know, you discovering this kind of music, like with, with uh, normal people, I'm going to say, like you, there would be a big chunk of time before they start really getting into music. But I happen to know that you started Mo Wax when you were 16. So there wasn't... That, that, that's, 18. Okay, 18. Yeah. Still, there's not, a, there's not a lot of time. So, you know, what, what got you to that point? I mean, what was your kind of post So I left, I went from my second school into my my third school and I was 12 years old went to you know and I basically met you know the kids that were into hip hop and that was you know that was the thing and um, and through that I started DJing you know and um, and we had work experience when I was 14 as you did I don't know if you still do it at school mm. now, but we yeah. had work experience. And so everybody was doing you know the pretty regular work experience roles that one does um and i uh basically said i wanted to go and work in a record store 
And people were like, what do you mean? <laughs> so I said, I want to work in a record store and I want to work in London. And they were like, and I, there were no rules to say you couldn't, even though I yeah. worked in Oxford. So I did a deal with the school. They said, well, you can go work. For, if you work for your dad for a couple of days, then we can sign that off as something more official in the lawyer's <laughs> office. And I basically blagged uh, work experience in Bluebird Records, which was on the Edgware Road. And Bluebird was, was one of these record stores at the time where you had what was called sort of import record stores, which were bringing records from America. And it was, you know, there were these incredible record stores in Soho and, 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 and across London, and Bluebird was a chain. Um, and it was the first store that I went to in London to buy records in London as a 14-year-old, yeah. which was in the Berwick, which is actually in Berwick Street first. But the, and I asked them for a job, and they said no, but they said, cool, why don't you try Edgeware Road? Yeah. And actually, Edgeware Road was incredible because Edgeware Road, whereas Berwick Street was very dance music, electronic based, and this was the beginning of kind of... Acid House, Transmat, and early white labels from labels like Warp starting. Yeah. And then, but, and, but then the Bluebird in Edgeware Road was very all-encompassing. It was very much, you know, so it was soul, jazz, hip-hop, funk, breakbeat. It was all, all the records you were starting to put out, all this white label culture. Um, I grew up between London and Bristol, so... The sound system thing was a huge influence for me. So Soul to Soul were the first sort of DJ collective band, you know, live show I ever saw in London. Um, I was really obsessed with The Wild Bunch, who then became Massive Attack, yeah. and producers like Smith & Mighty. And why Bristol? What, what was it that got you to Bristol and drew you to Bristol? Well, I first started going to Bristol to actually going back to martial arts because there was an amazing martial arts store there so I used to ah. go and, and I don't know when I was you know when I was 12 I was I was going so basically my journey was that I got really into martial arts I got pretty good at martial arts and I started going to London to study at 12 and that's how I got to Soho because all the great martial arts schools were in Soho and Covent Garden yeah and to get to the martial art uh, where I was doing Wing Chun at the time I'd have to go through Berwick Street so that's how I discovered all these records. Yes, yeah. and 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 it was as much as a musical thing as it was a visual thing, you know. And and um, so that was kind of my way of doing it. But equally, on the other front, I was going to Bristol and I was going doing going to this store there, and and then I started going to record stores there because I started realizing there was this label called Three Stripe Records. They produced the first Massive Attack record. This guy's called Smith and Mighty. They're putting out these really interesting records, and also because in Oxford. Uh, the first time I ever really, the first time I ever really saw somebody that I just wanted to be in my own environment, not on television, not in Wild Style or in Public Enemy, you know, or the Beastie yeah. Boys or whatever, Run DMC. I, there was there were these two guys. There was a guy called Bobby, and there was a guy called Suvy who were in Oxford. And Suv was in the Fresh Four that then went on to do, uh, was part of Ronnie Size's Full Cycle. Yeah. And I'd never seen guys look so cool, you know, like straight 501 Black Levi's, bomber, goose down, bomber jackets, white Adidas um, shell toes, <laughs> crazy hats, hair shaved. You know, it was like, wow. And so uh, when I, you know, seeing Suvy, I, I got very into sort of the Bristol thing. Yeah, and yeah. and 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 also having watched Bombing, which was the first ever documentary about British hip hop culture on on Channel Four. I don't know, it was on. I think it was on ITV, where you had, you know, the Wild Bunch, which had people like Daddy G and Three D, who then went on to do Massive Attack, Milo, Wild Bunch, Goldie. So that was the first time that you kind of saw something you felt like this is happening in your own environment, and these are people you can identify with. Rather than America being, you know, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Transatlantic yeah. over there. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm really interested to hear you reference all of these records because I was I worked on Smith and Mighty. Um, right. Yeah, so I was working for a guy called Simon Goff at yeah. Secret Pro- Promotion. So I promoted the the Walk On By record. I had was lots of, of records with the stickers on. Yeah, Secret Promotion. Yeah, exactly. So I probably, I, you know, if that was a record that you were you were into, that I might have even mailed maybe mailed that out um, at the time. And and then, yeah, and I tried to, and then when I left Secret Promotion. Um, before XL had started, I tried to sign Wishing on a Star um, by Fresh Four yeah. to City Beat, which was the, the label that I was kind of working for at the time. So oh, was City Beat part, part of um, Thingy Sounds it, well, in City, Holborn? No. No, no, City Beat was pre-XL, right? You got it. Yeah. That's right, yeah. 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 So, so you know, and again, having grown <laughs> up in Bristol myself, the, you know, all of these records, I was I was excited by them, but I was maybe just like a few years ahead yeah, and I was yeah, actually kind of yeah, yeah. wow. involved and working wow. in them and uh, working on them. So it's great to hear you reference them as being um, Yeah, I mean, those they were, they were hugely, you know, I, I think it was it was also the fact of trying to identify with you know America was you know the hip hop thing in America was was felt so kind of in times unattainable mm. and then suddenly you had bands or, or collectives coming out like Smith and Mighty Soul to Soul with this English twist with these yep. incredible songs rather than necessarily rap but they were taking the beats and and it just felt like you were kind of there was something that you were part that you that organically was happening in the UK yeah um, and, and and they though, and it was a big thing when I started DJing because I started in the sound system when I was 14 that's how I really first started DJing and one of the guys in the sound system you know we all everybody wanted to be the wild bunch or soul to soul and what was great is it was multicultural so it would be you know you I could identify with wanting to be 3D but you know, a friend of mine would want to be Mushroom, or somebody else would want to be Jazzy B, or da 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 da. You know, yeah. and um, and one of the guys in our sound system was Trevor Mad Hatter's cousin, right. who is Trevor Nelson. Yes, you know? but he was in Soul to Soul first, and so we were getting Soul to Soul records, and through him, he was hooking us up. And what, you know, what was the name of the sound system that you were in? Underground Movement? Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and uh, there was about three sound systems in Oxford. We were kind of like the lower down the pecking order, but right. we, we, but that's how I started. Um, and then and and so you had a record like Smith and Mighty, Anyone, or Walk On By, yeah. and yeah. and they just they I became obsessed with that kind of sound, you know. Um, well, let's yeah. uh, let's let's put a you know a flag and let's put a pin in the map or whatever like now with before we get down because we are going to play obviously going to play a massive attack tune later yes, let's, yes. let's let's soundtrack this with with smith and mighty trailblazers james lavelle Walk on So James, you are uh, you are avidly consuming at this point uh, music, and you are DJing at a surprisingly young age. And um, so, I guess it was only a, a short amount of time before you wanted to actually monetize this in a, in beyond DJing and I get never it. Really get thought it. about monetizing it, but well, yeah. well, I guess would well, yeah, with knowing knowing Mo Wax as I do, it's such a labor of love. It's yeah. such a labor of love, and well, well, so when when did the labor of love start? You know, I mean, did- I saw I, I wanted a job. That was the first thing. So I was working at Bluebird. That then unfortunately closed down, as many other great record stores did when. Um, 
when the record when the record industry decided to predominantly sell CDs rather than vinyl. Um, I then went to a record store in, in Portobello Road called Honest John's as another work experience, yes. <laughs> amazing enough, mm. when I was 16. Um, and I, I cut a long story short, left college, worked there, and through there I met some incredible people because it was an incredible musical landscape of selling records there. I, 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 it, was, it was originally a kind of jazz, soul, it was a black music shop, but predominantly sold old cut-out records. And I brought in the idea of selling new music. And and through that, because of Bluebird, I developed certain relationships with people and because Bluebird was an amazing conduit for... The, the regulars were Pete Tong, Paul Oakenfold, Tim Westwood, um, Giles Peterson, Norman Jay, uh, yada, 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 yeah. Simon Dunmore, all of these, you know, so those were, so I, I, these were the people I was selling records to as a teenager. Yeah. I went to Bluebird and a lot of these people started coming back and Giles would come a lot and he just started talking loud, mm. which I loved, you know, and I was getting really into the samples of the hip-hop records I loved, so I was getting more into jazz and soul and funk and wanting to educate myself. And I then met a woman called Cynthia, uh, Cynthia Rowan, who was an incredibly brilliant writer, and she said to me, you know, you should, you should meet up with a guy called Paul Bradshaw. You really should meet up with this guy. He, he runs a magazine called Straight No Chaser. Mm-hmm. I met up with him, and I started in the magazine a, a column to talk about new records. Yeah. And the column, I called it My Wax, Please. And the reason mm-hmm. why I called it My Wax was because of what was going on, that the vinyl was being phased out. Um, and through that column, I would get a lot of stuff sent to me globally because Straight No Chaser had a great global our, uh, presence. So it was big yeah. in Japan, it was big in Europe, it was big in America, in the way that you could be big in those days. But it was a real, it had this global thing rather than being very much a sort of just an English thing. And so I'd get records sent to me from all over the world. And what I realized is that, you know, a lot of these records were not being, so there was not an outlet for these records. And I tried to get a job at Ireland, I tried to get a job at Talking Loud, I, I just, nobody would give me a job. And really, I just wanted to work in a record company, but nobody would give me a job. So I decided uh, eventually to start my own label. (laughs) And that's how it started when I was 18. And Mark, who started Honest John's, lent me the money to... I went to America, as as you could do in those days. I got on a plane and I went to America and I took a thousand pounds cash and I bought a record. (laughs) And that was repercussions from, uh, from, um, from what was the Groove Academy, which was the sort of alternative to talking loud in America in New York and that's where it all started really and would that be a good should we play that or is there a it's not I mean it's it's, it's not really you know when I started I think you know you start by hook or crook and you know that was an opportunity and I loved the record but I don't think it was where it wasn't where I wanted to necessarily necessarily go with with the label I think when I started the label you know for me the, the, what, my ideal situation at the time would have been, you know, the record that really changed everything for me emotionally and visually and and sort of sonically was Blue Lines, Massive Attack. Right. That was a record that really made me feel that if I could do something like this, if I could put out records like this, if I could make artwork like this, if I could make a universe like this, 
yeah. then that's what I'd want to do as a record label rather than just a band. Of course, because it no. ticked all the boxes. It, it yeah. had uh, well, it had the strings, it had the hip hop, it had yeah. the sound system, and it had it the had, visual, it had yeah. the photography. It was you know, yeah. Mondino taking pictures. It's 3D doing the paintings. Yeah. If you look at the liner notes, it's every, every it, you know, it's interesting to read Blue Lines, the, the thank yous, because mm. it sums up pretty much to me all of the. The, the greats of that period and that's that's what I wanted to try and do with a label and it's it's so holistic naivety, it, it, you know? it, it's so culturally holistic isn't it yeah. it's just it's kind of everything and I've always seen Mo Wax as not just a record label but it's almost like a way of life kind of brand and I know? think those a record like that as well as hip hop you know you've got to understand it's also British record so that that it gave you that, that if they could do something like that then maybe I can whereas if you're looking at Tommy Boy or Def Jam or whatever it's way over there you know, and I didn't go to America until I was seventeen. So, and still, that's still quite young, in 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 my time. But um, so you know, so it was still this this. It was very far away. Everything it felt like not that obtainable. You know, whereas suddenly this record came out, and records, you know, Soul to Soul was quite a big influence mm. in that way as well. These records came out that made you realise, go well, actually. I could do it. And labels like G Street, I wanted a label. You know, what I wanted Moax to be was a combination of Massive Attack, Major Force, G Street, Warp, Blue Note, ECM. Yeah. Put that all into a label. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. As examples. Yeah. Def Jam, you know. Yeah, well, I think you did. And, and But equally, I think emotionally, uh, Blue Lines spoke to me in a way that no other record had emotionally connected with me in, in the same way before. Yeah. When I heard there were two tracks, I mean, you know, it's, it was the era of cassettes. I got given a promo cassette of the album, which is quite interesting because I found it recently, and, and it's quite interesting because the tracks are called different tracks, which is great on the cassette promo. I I went home to talk, so I must have listened to that record. I think for probably two weeks nonstop. You just lie in your bedroom for hours and hours, just repeating this record and ones in and and you know from from unfinished sympathy, which just seemed, it just seemed like having grown up with. A dad show for strings, yes, things like that. To hear that in a record which was street, that was cool, but it was emotionally was so sophisticated. Yeah, I mean, I think what you've got to do when you go when you look back at that period with certain musicians is you just realise, you know, when they put that record out, they were in their twenties. How sophisticated it is that uh, uh, you know kids yeah. are making and- these records, you know, um, and and you know you'd have a record like that, and then you'd have a record like. The title track, Blue Lines, which was just this sort of, they were just, they just spoke to you in a way that you'd never been spoken to before because it, 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 you were living that life. You were part of that. The language, the sound, the references, they were, they, it, it all come together, you know, in a record. And in such a timeless way as well. Yeah, timeless and so sophisticated, you know. Well, that's, uh, I, so Unfinished to me is, is arguably the most influential record in my career. My favourite single of all time. Trailblazers. James Lavelle. So we are with uh, James Lavelle. 
and uh, we have played uh, well you, what you've, you've said is uh, you know a, 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 your most sort of emotional record and it's hard not to feel emotional when you when you hear uh, a record like that by Massive Attack so you are now um, fully involved you've got a job because you started a label and like you say the first song that you put out wasn't like your you know exactly what you wanted to do so what was what well, was think, it and think, how did I think, it kick I think off it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't what I wanted to do I was in a very you know I was I was I started That's How It Is with Charles Peterson which was this incredible club on a Monday night I was DJing in that world and you want to be part of the world you know I'd been accepted into this world and yeah. I'd managed to you know that was the door that I'd broken down to get my foot in the door in the music industry as yeah. well as a DJ. And I, I lo- Giles was, you know, he was like a hero to me. I mean, this guy was just the greatest musicologist I'd ever, you know, you could imagine. And and Talking Loud was really exciting. I think, you know, you can talk about, there's, there's always this sort of, sometimes this sort of negativity about acid jazz. Um, but actually, they, they were. it was a very multicultural open-minded scene you were hearing house records and techno records with jazz records with soul records with hip-hop records all put together in in a a period where things were very segregated you know it all started together and then it all got quite segregated you know yeah i remember if you went to a hip-hop club you wouldn't hear a house record yeah Yeah, it was a house club you wouldn't hear a hip-hop record anymore ironically enough if you look at the early flyers of energy or whatever you'd have public enemy epmd carl cox fabio and groove rider and you know, I don't know. It, 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 a little bit later, earlier than Apology, but you know, mm. it, if, you know, it was sort of, it was really eclectic because there wasn't enough house records yeah. at the time. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. But then suddenly it all got very division based, yeah. and so when that scene was so open, and it was also really beautiful girls, it was like <laughs> yeah. dressing up. It was it was amazing music, um, and and. So I, 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 you know, it was an amazing place to get an education, and and I think when I started, I just wanted all I wanted was Giles to play a record of mine. <laughs> so that was the goal, you know. Yeah. I didn't care about anything. I just wanted him to play my record. So I was much more led towards the idea of what was going on in that scene. Yeah. So I put out records like Repercussions and 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 a few other records. After that, we were a bit more acid jazzy. I think what I realised is that I, because of where I, I'd come from, a much more hip hop and an electronic music background as far as collecting records as as my basis, you know. Um, and so I kept constantly wanting going, wanting to go more in that direction. And records. So when I started putting out records like La Funk Mob, that was when it really I felt that the identity of the label was was starting and I realised that actually by putting out records that I that felt really close really much more about what I was it actually translated better Mm. yeah and because so the community around me got stronger because all of these kids were coming we were meeting up and you know that's where I met the Charlie Williamses and the Will Bankheads and the Ben Drury's and da 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 we were all similar ages and we're all into this sort of fusion of sort of more hip hop but because we liked techno and we liked acid house we like there was this sort of more instrumental thing going on within that music world it was combining it and i think hmm. though that you know record like that and then going into things like dj shadow and with my wax there's the visual has always been so important the visual mm. aesthetic of it and so i've got to ask at this point when did your uh, your visual love affair with futura start because well it, it started as a child because you know spray can and subway art were the Bibles, you know, you'd literally be thrown out every art lesson for not listening to 
you know, a, 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 a lecture about um, Matisse because you were reading Subway Art with your mates in the back of the club, at the back of the school yeah. classroom, you know. So early on when those, you know, and so I was very into graffiti and that culture. But Futura, um, I... I I think it was just the abstractness of of him and people like 3D that I loved, where it wasn't so text based. Yeah, and and so when when I started doing the label, I I, I started with Swifty, who was this incredibly brilliant designer who'd done Talking Loud and mm-hmm. was doing Straight No Chaser, and then I started trying to introduce very early on into the records doing paintings as covers, and I had an opportunity. I met Futura. I actually met Futura in Berlin through some mutual friends when I was DJing there. Mm. And I asked him if he'd be up for doing it. And he, you know, he was really into this sort of science fiction soundtrack that we were sort of creating sonically and and also wanted a place to be able to have his work shown. So was, yeah, yeah. And, and am I right in thinking then you, you paid to bring him to the UK? Yeah, I brought him to Which the UK. Which is quite an yeah, unusual yeah, yeah, yeah. I brought him thing for a record was... label to do. Yeah. Ship in an, an artist and yeah, well, just say, create some art for us. Yeah, well, so I, I brought, say, I brought was, him yeah. here when I was 21, yeah. yeah. I had an office on, um, in uh, Mortimer Street. In just north of Soho. Yes. Yeah. And I had an office where it was myself, Major Force had a studio there, Howie B had a studio, Fraser Cook uh, had a, he was selling clothing, doing sort of pervert and subway. And, you know, so all these things were kind of, it was all happening, you know, between the various different disciplines and people. And, um, and Futura, yeah, I brought Futura over and he stayed for a couple of weeks, slept on my floor and my <laughs> flat I was renting, you know. And that was the beginning, you know, of wicked. that stuff. The him, 3D, I started working with Lee Quinones, who did Wild Style, Stash. Um, and and going to New York and having really very much sort of trying to penetrate that world, you know, I went to meet Henry uh, Chalfont who did um, who did uh, Wildstar, mm. right? I think Wildstar, uh, and uh, yeah, he did Wildstar, and I got. I, I managed to get him to give me the original white label of the Wildstar Breaks, you know, which is one of the most legendary collectible hip hop records of the time, and and I I met. Basquiat's ex-partner, manager, and got you know, and, and Jules, and in New York, and and I think at that time, you know, there wasn't an interest in that stuff in the way that there is now. It just was a bit of a an era where I was lucky that I was this young kid that was sort of knocking on the doors, and the doors were opening because people weren't that weren't knocking on the doors, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and and just as as things happen, you know, I was I was working with Michael Copperman who who ran Stussy here and. You know, and then he had a great relationship in Japan. I had major force, and so they they started hip hop in Japan, and and so that office became this amazing conduit for people to come. Yeah, I just remembered the very first time that I saw, and it was saw, not heard, a Moax record. Matt, if you're listening, thanks for this. I was in my friend Matt. I was at Radio One as a producer, and and in there, one of the like one of the you know kind of underground music producers had this amazing looking record on his desk with these cone heads mm. and I just I and I and I walked past and I was sort of, I remember going back and going dude what is this record it's so cool he said oh this is it's this new label it's this really cool label Moax and and, and I said can I can I hear it because that's just such an amazing image these 
mad futuristic coneheads. I didn't I had no idea about Futura. I didn't come from your your mm. sort of world. Mm. And I put it on and it had that sort of telephone skit with that guy going, you know, uh, no 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 no, no, no wait, 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 wait. Yeah, yeah, oh, is that what it is? Yeah, it's it's like trip hop, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I, yeah. I was, I'm listening to it and thinking, no, this isn't really a trip hop record. It's just kind of cooler than that. But that was my but it was it, you know, I say the visual is so important for Moax and that's what it was the visual that first kind of it was the hook that lured me in and then I well, sort of I fell loved, in love with the music too. Identity, you know, I love yeah. collecting records and I like labels that had like Blue Note or Def Jam or, you know, they had a kind of, there was an identity to things. You wanted to buy every time a record came out, you just bought the record because the music was good and the, and the products, it was a, a collectible thing, you know. Yeah, well, that's what it became. Mowax yeah. was just buy at no risk and I just, yeah. I just then started buying all your records. Yeah. How about we stick uh, the funk mob on and yeah. then yeah. tell us about DJ Shadow. Yeah, that's yeah, cool, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Trailblazers, James Lavelle. So the funk mob, mo wax. It's rolling. It's feeling pretty exciting. DJ Shadow, what happens? So I, I, I was going to America, um, and, and I one of the big things I was doing when I was at Honest John's was I was very good at getting promos to sell of American hip hop records. So vinyl was not being produced, <clears throat> and the only way to get a lot of uh, good records was on promotional copies, and I had just found a knack of a way of blagging American record labels into sending me records. And then also you'd have a lot of um, a lot of producers would, ironically enough, um, a lot of hip-hop producers would come to the record store to buy breaks, even though they were the records. We were getting them from America. You know, so you'd have, you know, these amazing producers coming in and I'd be swapping records and I'd say, OK, if you want me to get you this, for sake of argument, James Brown, whatever record, you get me, get me a load of these promos or whatever. Mm. And so I started, I, that, that became quite a big networking thing for me before the label. And I, um, I was in LA at one point, there was a label that I love called Hollywood Basic, which was started by Funk and Klein, who worked for Red Alert Productions, who was a very important person within hip, early hip-hop, sort of mid-hip-hop culture, the sort of whole beginning of Native Tongues, De La Soul, Dada, yes. and I loved his outlook, and he started this label called Hollywood Basic, which the idea was it was a worldwide hip-hop label, and they'd sign, so they had records from Japan, they had Major Force, they had Soul Shot from Denmark, they had... Uh, you know, the first African hip-hop record from Zimbabwe, and it was called Zimbabwe Legit, and I got the promo when I was in America. And I didn't really like the, the, the record, but there was this remix on the B-side, and it was by a guy called DJ Shadow, and it was called Zimbabwe Legit, you know, DJ Shadow's legitimate remix. And it has nothing to do with the original record, but it was this incredible cut and paste instrumental. And I heard it, and I just fell in love with it. And I just thought that, you know, if, if you put out records like this, it could really... This is what I wanted to hear, you know, as this is what could define... This was the kind of music I wanted to release on my label. And I slept on it for a while, and then eventually I kind of came back to it, and kept coming back to it, and and I had a friend who worked at Tommy Boy, who was um, one of the heads of A&R, a guy called Albie. 
and he was introduced to me by DJ Jules, who was a brilliant New York hip-hop DJ who was originally from London, whose best friend was Michael Copperman. Michael Copperman ran Stussy and was this, they were all part of the Stussy crew, you know. And uh, I called Albie and I asked him, you know, about DJ Shadow and he said, look, you know, it's not really happening in America and actually you guys will just get on so well. I really think you should call him, you know. And he gave me his number and I called him and, and we had this four-hour conversation on the phone, you know, um, <laughs> about our love of international hip-hop and talking about, you know, he kept talking to me about Cookie Crew and, you know, Demon Boys and Hijack and that Lost Hijack tape. And I was talking about, you know, I remember a big conversation about the, the ultra-magnetic album that hadn't come out, but I had a cassette. He's like, I've got a cassette too. And <laughs> da, 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 da. Two train spotters. It was just... like <laughs> the ultimate train spotter. Brilliant. Um, like the touch yeah. Chewing the fat. Yeah, yeah oh and, my God. And I kind of, I suppose, you know, I sort of I fell in love. You know, it was, just, it was a love of yeah. kindred yeah. spirits. Yeah, yeah. Love of, yeah, you, know. you shouldn't be afraid to say that. No, yeah, I'm not absolutely. afraid. I'm yeah. quite happy with my feminine side. <laughs> uh, I fell, we deeply, I think we just fell in love with, with this, with our love of, of everything hip-hop and everything in between. So was it clear after that initial first four-hour conversation that you are going to be working together? Yeah, well, it I was. said to him, can you make me a record? Yeah. And he was like, what do you mean, make your record? I'm like, I want you to make a record, but I want it to be like Zimbabwe legit. And he was like, what? <laughs> Nobody wants that stuff. I'll make it a bit more. And I was like, no, make it more hardcore. Mm, yeah. And that was the moment that we started. And he's like... Great. Okay, you Brilliant. know, and he sent me influx, made influx, and I remember I had that was before I had the office in um, in in uh, Soho. I had a, an office in uh, Lily Road in Fulham with Rene, who ran Black Market Records, oh, yes. and Tony Farcides, who at yes. the time was writing for Music Week, right, yes. and uh, and Fraser Cook, and I got this track and. We had a DAT machine. It was Rennie's sound system. <laughs> and I remember playing the DAT and just hearing this record and it was just... It just changed, it was just changed everything. A game changer. But, but it was interesting that when I played it to people, people were like, yeah, it's cool, but who's going to listen to that? And that was the kind of... My argument about the, uh, you know, instrument, this instrumental soundtrack-based kind of idea of hip-hop, you know, working because great classical records or whatever but nobody kind of understood that and I but it's great because I put it out and that was the, the you know history you know tells, yeah. tells itself after that really yeah 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 well absolutely and, and it's and the, the the formula is is set there with you you shaping it you know you you calling it you know because because it was Josh pushed you back at the beginning going no I just don't think it should be like that right and you were like no it needs to be more yeah, 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 like absolutely. this you know, and, that's, yeah, yeah. and that's kind of the story of your life isn't it production wise you know you, you, you hook up with people and then you you shape it I, I, I'm involved in I, I, yes sometimes it depends yeah yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah 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 but yeah I mean I I, I think you know in, in those days of making records and as I've continued to make records yes you know and I think that was what was great about that time as well because great people did and I'm not saying I'm great but I think great yeah. records were made in that way and um, and yeah it was you know I, I I just managed to meet you know I was very fortunate that I think at a time there was a, 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 a you know a movement happening of people that didn't have a centre and maybe that I kind of became that centre to help bring all of those great people together. 
And I think it was a, 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 a moment of change, you know, where a youth movement, movement that weren't being supported by the older guard, didn't have the, the avenues to be creative. And in my little way, I created an avenue for those people to be purely creative. Yeah, you're a great catalyst. <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you've always been a fantastic bringer together of talent, you know, spotting it. And, and, and finding a, an avenue for it and, and, and nurturing and, and cultivating connecting talent so if we're going to play a if we're going to play a DJ Shadow track at this point I mean it's really be? hard I mean you know Influx is obviously the track that really started it all and then you have What Does Your Soul Look Like which was the EP that came out that kind of was when it kind of went started to go in stratospheric introducing as a record is my the favourite record I've probably ever released as an album and been involved with yeah. for many different reasons. Um, so, I don't know. Um, I'd say you either go for something like Influx or maybe you go for a record like the, that was on the album. You know, I, I, For me, just as far as its impact of how it works in clubs and it kind of, it just exploded and I and I love it as a piece of, as a, as a track was Organ Donor. Off introducing. I was going to say it's got to be. I yeah. mean, you know, when you when, you, when you, I remember the very first sticker was it Scott Peering who who um, plugged that initially. I, 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 don't I, even I, remember I think it was Scott. Bless him. Bless his. Uh, like, um, you know, I, I miss the guy. Uh, but he he put on the on the sticker or whatever on the promo, promotional sticker. He said, "This is the Jimi Hendrix of the sampler." And I just thought, wow, yeah. you know, that is that is absolutely. But right. that was the track that just got played. Like when it went stratospheric, yeah. you know, it got played everywhere and 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 is one of those songs that has kind of not left my box in 20 whatever years trailblazers james lavelle Want to hear more of the music? Don't forget, you can listen to the tracks in full by heading over to Deezer.com, where you'll also find special Trailblazers playlists. Deezer Originals. Okay, well, that's a game changer record from a game changing album, and like I say, Jimi Hendrix of the sampler, and um, and uh, I mean. Tell me to f off, James, if I'm getting too close to the bone here. But like, I feel as though you were unfairly treated in when when your relationship with with DJ Shadow sort of disintegrated. Um, I feel as though I don't know in the press or in, with with people in the business or whatever. I think you got a raw deal because when I got to know you, you you said to me, and I was shocked that you got put in a position where where Josh took all of the publishing for, of that record mm. and 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 i'm thinking well as someone who makes records as well in a sort of similar way i just thought well that's 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 maybe maybe what we what james needs to do because there was the there was the uncle project yeah. obviously yeah. later yeah. i yeah. mean maybe give us a bit of a timeline so that well we did introducing and yeah. introducing became you know we sold a million records as an independent it it was you know voted best record of the year pretty much globally and the relationship was Still it, very strong. It was very, very strong. Positive very positive. Um, we then, you know, I was starting to do the Uncle Record originally with Tim Goldsworthy, who that later went to start DFA, um, who I'd grown up with in Oxford. Um, that relationship was starting to falter a little bit. And Shadow, excuse me, mm. 
Shadow was sort of, he was the guy, you know, he sold the records, he's making the label a fortune, and the label was now with Universal, with A&M, and uh, so this sort of idea of, okay, you know, things are not working out with Tim, you know, would be great to make a record, do the uncle record with DJ Shadow, which obviously everybody in the you know, in the powers of the the record, you know, the the corporate side of the record company were enamoured. That's of course they wanted that. You know, it was it was, and and so we we embarked on making science fiction. And I think, you know, it, it yeah, it, it was the beginning of the end of my wax and the beginning of the end of my relationship with Josh. I think that Josh it was a very self. You know, he was a, an artist who was very, uh, very used to doing everything himself. So then to collaborate and be on timelines of other people became very difficult. He, um, I pushed for the, for the moon. You know, I, I was prepared to wait for Tom York or whoever it was to yeah. the songs. Um, I think, I always feel that with Josh, it was an experiment for him. I think that what I realised that Uncle was not something that he be- he didn't see. Have the vision of what I wanted Uncle to be was very different from what he wanted to be. Mm. It was not a vanity project. It was not something which was going to be a one-off record. Uh, but that was how everybody else was seeing it press-wise. You know, you've got to imagine that Moax was stratospheric at that point. Yeah. Um, and I think England England is traditionally is very bad at building things up and really ripping them down. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. I was... And so Uncle became the opportunity to really rip everything down because the whole started to to show. And unfortunately, you know, my contribution to that record, which was not seen in the way that I, that, that I would have seen it, was that I was told that by the record label and by Shadow that, you know, I own the record label, da-da-da-da-da. Uh, I shouldn't really, you know get anything out of this record really other than you know it's like and Shadow should have all the publishing and um, Shadow was very adamant that he had made the record my argument was that um, these records are not made like that you know, you're sampling people's records, so you're not you're not sitting there with yeah. a guitar first and foremost. You're taking other people's music. Secondly, it's not your idea to get any of the the people involved on the record. It wasn't your idea. To, you know, when for instance, so one of my favourite songs off that record is Lonely Soul. Oh yeah. So Lonely Soul, you know. Shadow wasn't in the room when when I spoke to Will Malone about the fact that I wanted to make a hip-hop record that sounded like a Daggio for strings. Yeah. Um, he wasn't the person that spoke to Richard Ashcroft about what the direction of felt of what the song would be. Yeah. Or, you know, um, and he was basically, and, and I'm sorry to say it, but, you know, in many ways, because I make records to this day, Josh was like a programmer. He was yeah. not a tr- traditional writer. And, and, and that's fine, but... He took everything, and I, I got, and and that then, that then, the the domino effect of that, meant that it allowed every the mystique was gone. Yeah. By by the record label insisting and shadow that, you know, I'm like a director and he's the artist. You gave people the whole. I don't. Do you know what everybody does in Massive Attack? No. 
No, we no, don't. No. That's part of the allure, for, yeah. as an example, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, you don't know. You don't need to know everything. Part of mis- music is not... You don't need to know... You know, and, and, and I understand if you're Neil Young or if you're Noel Gallagher or whatever or, yeah. you know, Fleetwood Mac or whatever. It's a very traditional writing process. But in my world, because of dance... You know, dance music, a lot of the time, the way dance music are made, records are made is... For example, something like Goldie doesn't program his records. Yeah, it's always... He, yeah. he, he gives... He, he just he describes what he's wanting to achieve. Um, nor does Brian Eno, actually. <laughs> yeah, know, well, he's just John Hopkins. I, mean? I know. Yeah, so, that's right. There's so always, a, there's an always engineer, been this you know. thing. There's engineers, there's programmers. Some yeah. people do, some people don't. But I think <laughs> the idea for me was that it was a collaborative experience. And so your ideas... I'm, I'm just yeah, going to like, throw a different perspective on it, though, because there's a lot of people running dance labels who have artists signed. Maybe they've got a drum bass artist signed, and you sa- and the person running the, the label might say, "How about you sample this hip hop act, or how about you do a cover of that?" And the artist goes, "Yeah, that's a good idea," but then you don't get the person who is the A and R guy. You know, or the or the label runner necessarily going, hey, now I suggested that it should be a cover, or, or I suggested that you should sample this yeah, yeah. thing. So actually, I should be in the in the artist in the publishing equation, whatever. So that's the other side of it. Yeah. That. But but when you're an A mind selling an artist, you're tending to try and push their career. Yes. Uncle wasn't. And that was my idea. Uncle's yes. you, and it's always been it's you and whoever and you're You've got to remember with. also Uncle existed before DJ Shadow. Yeah. This record didn't start with DJ Shadow. Of course, it was and Tim Goldsmith. also, Goldsburg, I yeah. started the label to be able to put out my own records also. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So of course. It, you know, and so, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, a never-ending situation. But I think that, uh, unfortunately, it, you know, it, it, it had, you know, it's had very uh, big consequences on... on our relationship, but also my relationship with the music business and how, and, and also a record that, you know, the, the biggest selling record I ever made that I've never ever paid, been paid one penny from. Ever. Yeah, you I've must, never yeah. made one penny off. So it I'm must sure be like when Richard penny. Ashcroft hears uh, Bittersweet Symphony, hmm. same, it's just, he gets the, must get the same feeling because yeah, Jagger but, and Richards get but, all of the money from but, it. But he also did sell 20 million copies of his album where he gets every other track yes. published. Yes, yeah, so, so believe yeah, me, he yeah. did all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, sure. No, I wasn't you know, doubting so, that. But so it was just more. It's a response. little bit as an example of, of great albums. We had them constantly in the 50s and 60s and 70s where they put the cover version out, but they'd sell the album. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and everybody did all right. Yeah, uh, yeah. What, what is your advice to creators, artists, you know, on collaboration, having had the experiences that you've, that you've had? Is it? Is it? Hey, guys, get this stuff out in the open as I, early I as do, you but can. It's, it's always really complicated. It's never that easy. No, because every band's different. Every and, and relationship. Every every, different. every yeah. song you make ends up can end up in a different way. Um, I think I, it just depends on the scenario. I think that you've got to realize, but I do think that you, you you've got to remember that. I think at the end of the day, you know, music creation, art, all of the things can be very narcissistic. And I think that you 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 have to step back and realise that you're not always the only person that makes things happen. The, the the putting records out is generally a collaborative effort, regardless of if you make the the just you're the only sole maker of a song, because you know the mix can change everything. 
Yep. The master can change everything. Yeah. The 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 photograph, the artwork, the video, all everything, all of these things can culminate to create something bigger than the sum of its parts. Yeah. In the same way that when you build a building, it's not just the architect that makes that. Yes, but, yes, you know, yes, absolutely. And I think that you've just got to, sometimes it's important to step back and realise that. And and when you're in a collaborative situation, be mindful of, 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 of others that have, have contributed to your work. There's a part of your career which we haven't uh, talked about, which is which so obvious. Um, I mean, you're a legendary DJ. Your 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 DJ career was going um, in in parallel with all of this, and I don't know where you found the time. And 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 I guess your love affair with Japan must have kicked off in this in this time. And that's a that's a whole other conversation, you know. Mm. And you, when when did you first go to Japan? And when I was seventeen. Well, okay. Yeah. So a couple of years ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yes, Japan. Uh, I, I, I was, you know, it was an amazing, you know, it was a very amazing time of international DJing constantly. Mm. But, you know, I think the combination of all those things probably in the end didn't help. <laughs> yeah, I, you know. yeah, perhaps, perhaps um, so. But, but, you know, from doing Barumba, you know, to places like Fabric, to then, you know, I opened Womb in Tokyo. I was resident of Zook in Singapore, Watergate in Berlin, to name, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, let's let's not gloss over Fabric because, um, I mean, one of my prized possessions in in terms of mix albums and I'm sitting around the table with uh, two people who have been involved in two, two of my three favourite mix albums ever, is Fabric 01. Right. In that metal case. Yeah. And, you know, you were Fabric's first ever resident, right? Yeah, me and Craig Richards. Yeah. That's right. And yeah. so you and that whole Fabric Live, Friday nights, you took that glorious, uh, what became a, a, an amazing, uh, again, in, incubation for new music in a live scenario. Such and must, must have been such an interesting time and, and one, 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 a brilliant thing to do at that time. Yeah, it was, you know, the, the sort of that thing of lunatics running in the asylum. It was a club <laughs> built by clubbers, finally. It was, yes. It was, it just took everything to another level, you know, to be able to be part of a, you know, that that beginning of that club was, and, and still to this day, that club's pretty phenomenal. But um, it was a very special time. Can you remember the first record that you dropped there? I can't, actually. Or the last? Or, or, no, or, the, or the last one in your first well, set? I mean, you remember any of the records you dropped there? <laughs> I do. I do remember a few, yeah. Well, okay, yeah, yeah, Healer yeah. would have been I remember the record, but, but and it, actually, what well, I do remember a funny story, because unfortunately, past recently, when we both worked with him, was Keith Flint. Mm. Oh. Was, taking a record off to show it to him whilst I was teaching, which didn't go down very well. Uh, what? That old classic where you yeah, just... Yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, shit. like, what's this record, mate? And you're like... But one of the records that I ended with pretty consistently for a long time was Bushwhacker the Healer. Which yeah, was yeah. A phenomenal, brilliant record. Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. Should, we, should we play that as a soundtrack? Well, I, I mean, that, sure. was, that, was, that, was, that was a really great record. And it's just been re released with some remixes, actually, yeah. in the last couple of weeks. But that, it, was a, it was a really great period of sort of again sort of this new wave of sort of interesting um new british european uh, sort of very druggy psychedelic yes. house breakbeat you know um club music and the club you know and and and, and you know the the fact that the, some you know for a long time fabric was just this incredible conduit where 
just everybody would be there. You know, I remember being there with you two one night, and yeah. you know, I did the, you know, as an example, or you know, then you know, then you'll be. I did the, um, we did a, an event with Massive Attack where for, against the. Um, Afghanistan, you know, situation which was going on, and, and we had, you know, it was the, the last time Daft Punk ever played. It was the first time Gorillaz played. We'd have, you know, DJ and people like Liam. I mean, the I don't know if it's still on record, but the longest queue ever was when me and Liam Howlett DJed it. Yes, at Fabric. Yeah, that's so and it, rare. And it went nearly. It sort of went nearly down to Old Street Roundabout. <laughs> <laughs> so ridiculous. I mean, it's wow. like three miles, two miles down the road. You know. Wow. Um, and it was just. It was, yeah, it was, it was, it was insanely fun. But it was also, you know, it was the long weekend. You know, suddenly Friday would turn into Wednesday. You know? yeah, oh gosh, yeah, yeah. Well, so yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, before we get, rather than get into that wormhole, let's play the Healer by Bushwhacker, which I first heard, you know, through you, and and it's still it's still one of those ones that I take to every gig yeah, that I ever play. Beautifully and, uplifting, and, brilliant yeah. British house record. Trailblazers, James Lavelle. Bushwhacker, just just one of the best, like you say, clubby, druggy, psychedelic four four records that have ever been made. And I've just realised now that I completely forgot, maybe not the most important thing in your intro, but I forgot something that that's really important to me, and that is that you are, without a shadow of a doubt, and I'm I've, I'm not blowing smoke up your ass because you know I've said this a hundred times on radio and and beyond, the greatest remixer. Ever for me, Uncle oh, I, 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 I love you for saying that. But I, thank you. But I'm, you know, well, just I mean, I you know, know, I've been all those questions you get asked again and again. For me, for for, for nearly two decades, it's what's your favourite remix? And every single time, you know what it is because I've you know every time you come on yeah. my show, I always like pick you up for this one. It's Queens of the Stone Age. Mm. No one knows the Uncle Reconstruction, mm. and I say re, re, remixer. You're more you're more of a reconstructor. You know, you take these records. And then yeah, you because I don't. I, I, you know, I, when I look at you know, there's, there's remixes where, sort of, especially in the sort of 80s, where I think much better remixes I've ever made in the sense of records that actually got really played in clubs. Mm-hmm. I think my, my take has always been a little bit alternative. More headphone yeah, yeah, and a bit more, you know, because it's interesting, something like that Queen's record, when I did it, everybody hated it. <laughs> and it just didn't. It didn't quite connect until actually it was the Scratch Poets that started playing it, and then it just went stratospheric after that. Huh. I mean, I think the but the record, but actually, I'd say in the nineties it it really did. I mean, actually, I remember one of the really great moment was when I remixed Bittersweet Symphony, The Verve. Yes, and that became the most played remix ever on British radio, and even to the point that Guinness did an advertising campaign based on it because yeah. they they launched the the can of beer, the can of Guinness. And they said, you know, it was something like, not everything can be better than the original, but sometimes they are, like James's remixes. <laughs> and that was the advertising campaign. Jesus. I was like, yeah, all right. Wow. Yeah, it's <laughs> definitely know. all right. But, um, but no, it's, um, it's always great to be, you know, so it's, it can be really great fun to be able to sort of change and play with things and move yeah. things around, you, you, you know. You talk about that, you know, sometimes the, the creative process can be can be just 
pure joy, great fun and, and all the rest of it. But, you know, in, in your creative history, there's also been dark, you know, phases, struggles, relationships, etc. I watched uh, the movie, yeah. the, the, the Man from Owax, which uh, I uh, thought was uh, really interesting and, and enjoyable. Um, um, but it seems like, you know, you you go through some some pain to get the the optimum results is was one of the things i came away from that and do you think there's always a struggle in 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 creating great art and i I, the 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 ones that i've always been into yes but i don't know if i've self sort of personified it in you know sometimes it's like you know i'm more and more in my life now that I'm, i'm desperately trying to avoid that right yeah. and actually you can make things you know you know you can you know with calm and peace it's it's you know you can considerably sometimes make a lot better right but i don't know it's i the the the, the art the art that has drawn me in has always been sort of this sort of yin and yang this sort of relationship between light and dark mm. whether it's cinema whether it's music whether it's um, you know life in general, that's the sort of life that I've I've been drawn to, mm. you know. So when the documentary was being made, you know, I, I I sort of I suppose I wanted a documentary was going to be more like Hearts of Darkness than I would want it to be like, I don't know, um, you know, some kind of you know glitzy glamorous thing. I didn't I, I, I don't I, so I've I've always been drawn into that, and I've always. You know, through through my life's journey, I've always sort of put myself in. I've been I've been interested in going to extreme places and yeah. extreme experiencing extreme things. And and the artists that I gravitate towards and love are those kinds of artists. I don't know if that's you know that I it's definitely not what everybody experiences, or it doesn't mean that it's the right way to. It's just what drew me in. I think you know? the greatest art. I mean, certainly from where I've been looking at it, and I started doing you know history of art degree many many decades ago, like the greatest art has always come has not come from a good place no. it's come mm. from a bad place yeah. from mm. the Sistine Chapel onwards you know yeah. to, to, to an uncle record yeah. you know you, you, you managed to incredibly and profoundly uh, paint a, a, a come down it wasn't it wasn't a come up it was it was the coming down that, that was the it seemed to me like to be this kind of uh, lyrical and vibe obsession with uh, with a lot of uncle records mm. but speaking of you know you mentioned relationships um, disintegrating or otherwise like mm. it would be nice to sort of big up the, the, the chain of people that you've worked with because it's an incredible reflection on you James you know the uncle is who and you who you work with and it was correct me if I'm wrong at the beginning it was Tim Goldsworthy then it was Josh Davis, DJ Shadow, and then uh, jo- no, then it was Rich File, mm. and, and what a lovely guy, an incredible mm. producer. And you found him in drum and bass, is that right? Yeah, yeah, he was, you know, he was a drum and bass. He was DJing with Ed Rush and stuff like that, and Pyra, and make and starting to make tunes. And he was coming to Bar Rumba. He was, you know, just. But I and I loved his energy, you know. Yeah, I love people, and I love. I suppose in a certain way, there's part of what I've tried to do, and, and I don't mean it in any. Weird way is it's just sort of craft people being involved in how to craft somebody and you meet it's like me having music you know there's sort of in, in, you know these sort of relationships where you see something through somebody that you can try and channel and sometimes take and change and yeah you know and make and something out of and steer and, them and, right and, yeah you know because I always I did I did love. I, you know, in a weird way, I, I thought Rich's quote in the in the man from my wax documentary was brilliant about sort of being a paintbrush and. 
you know, but I don't mean it, you know, I'm not, that's not how I look at it. It's really hard to sort of look at yourself in that way, but I, experiencing these journeys with people and how you can kind of create stuff out of these experiences, mm. you know, and, and yeah. It, it's, so, it's, oh, it, I, I'm, I'm, sorry, go I've got to carry it. on the chain. Yeah. Because yeah. we go from, from Rich File, then, then correct me if I'm wrong, but we'd, we'd go to Pablo from the yeah. Psychonauts. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Pablo Clement. Um, and then, uh, and so, and another, you know, fantastic producer, engineer, yeah, you know, yeah. fantastic, great guy to work with. Uh, and so, like, who are you with now? You know, me, who is myself who is, and I. So you are realizing your, your art now. Because right when, we, when we went through your uh, Road Part One album to together on Soho Radio and you said and I found it very heartwarming you said this is my first solo record I think I think in the sense that, that I am the only person signed I'm the opposed the the, the I, you know uncle is mine in the sense of whatever this thing is you yeah. know the logo the name da 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 yeah um but every record is a collaborative record and whilst I might have worked with DJ Shadow or Tim Goldsworthy actually before that Kudo and Toshi from Major Force it's it's there's a wealth of other people that you're working with to create these records engineers arrangers writers players singers yeah. etc so um yeah and so is there anybody who you want to big up now who you're working with like engineers well, and I, I've been, you know and... i've worked with jack leonard of late who's been brilliant you know um matthew puffett who i grew up with you know steve weston cameron craig who i've worked with for years who makes my records mm. philip shepherd will malone who always create the most incredible you know classical string arrangements yes. etc performances you know the, the wealth of different musicians and, and and singers you know it's you know on, on the last few records working with and exa- examples people like esker keaton henson leela moss you know from mark oh. lanagan's uh, yes. troys and johns and Gosses from you know from from you know it's it's there's a there's a kind of there's there's certain people that I've worked with for a longer period of time and then on these records there's always you know there tends to be somebody that I may not of so of late you know the opportunity to work with somebody like Michael Kinnanuka or Tom Smith or you know as examples you know mm. it's been amazing you know Elliot Power Dorian you know Mink you know so oh, Elliot yeah. Power amazing uh, what yeah. a find yeah. and and has the process on on your your new music been been easier than some or or, or was it, it again I, I, it's at, at times uh, yeah and at times no because mm. the emotional struggle was always there yeah and, and so, probably always will be yeah, when you're you know, I, I, making I, records I, yeah, I'm imagining I think and 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 also, you know, I, I think when you collaborate with a lot of people, it just there are always things that just don't always go the way you want, and things that go way beyond the way you want. And yeah. it's kind of you're, you know, it doesn't matter how many times I've done it, there's always something that you're like, oh shit, or oh wow, you know, yeah. sort of. But I think that is quite the nature of doing quite ambitious collaborations. You know? Yeah, you and know. speaking of. Didn't the uh, didn't your first because you did two or maybe three Queens of the Stone Age remixes? Didn't that uh, wasn't that a uh, an entry point for you to then end up producing a Queens of the Stone Age record? Well, no, I mean I started I worked with Josh, so he sang on Never Neverland, yeah. um, and then there's an exchange for him doing a vocal on my record. I did the remix for No One Knows, right? Yeah. Which he lucked out on because that one got licensed for the Bourne's Bourne campaign. <laughs> um, so anyway, that was, you know, so he was happy. Um, and we just built a relationship over time. You know, he then collaborated on War Stories, da-da-da, and we did remixes and various stuff. And, and then we uh, 
were collaborating on what was going to be a, 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 a piece of music for a Ridley Scott film for the counsellor, the end of the counsellor. Mm. And Josh was working on Like Clockwork, the album, which wasn't called Like Clockwork at the time. And um, I think he'd kind of come to the end of that and wanted to just do something outside of that process for a minute. So we hooked up to record this song. The film didn't happen and Josh loved the song so, so much that he then said, oh, would you mind if it's the lead track of the album and the title track of the album? So it then became, the, you know, Like Clockwork then... Um, happened which was great and sort of i ended up that was brilliant because i ended up having a number one record in america which is brilliant you know. <laughs> another extreme another extreme yeah hip-hop kid from <laughs> oxford you know first number one record is with the downs. Uh, you know rock band from la you know it's amazing but yeah so that and, and he's somebody that i've just I, I love josh and i've had a and 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 a lot of the people that are around him i've, I've worked with and met and hung out with and yeah, it's been. I mean, I've been hanging out with Josh now for about well, fifteen, sixteen years now. So it's been really interesting to see the sort of really the beginnings of of where that band's gone to where they are now. Yeah, yeah, gosh. And, and I and I'm really proud of that song. It's one of my you know one of the moments I was really really proud of making that record. Yeah, maybe we should play it. Yeah. Trailblazers, James Lavelle. So James, I really want to know about this new record because um, the the road part one is, gosh, you know, if my flat was on fire and I could only get a handful of records, that would be what I, I absolutely love that record. I, I, you know, I think that it's and, and you know that I really revere a lot of the things that you've done, but it's how nice when the last thing that you've done is you know perceived by you know Anybody. somebody who's been into or anyone, yeah. but somebody who's been into you through your whole career as yeah. as the best thing you've done. I think it's absolutely amazing. So tell me about this new record because you had so many interesting people, collaborations, singers, Mark Landig and Leila Moss, who of course you worked with before. Um, so what's you know what's uh, what's brewing on this on this new what's cooking on the new one um well i think what you have to imagine is it's it's a trilogy and the first record i hadn't made a record for a while for about seven years i hadn't been an uncle record so you know i i'd kind of thought of i'd always wanted to make a sort of a, a, a record a series of records which in, in my way was kind of like my joseph campbell's hero's journey or odyssey or whatever so that was kind of my in my head of what I was trying to achieve as a as a as a as a piece, it was my reference point um, in a weird way. And so the first record was very much a kind of it's like starting again. And if you sort of look at it as a metaphor for the beginning of your life, it's sort of it's that le- you know sort of leaving home, you know, and 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 sort of there's a certain min- sort of feeling of 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 sort of intimacy and 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 sort of naivety and starting you know yeah the second record is kind of like the journey you know it's where you experiment it's where you try things out it's the right. mistakes it's the it's a, <laughs> it's it's all of that stuff you know so it's a double album that takes you from you know it's 18 i think it's 18 tracks and um 
it's very eclectic. So I also felt like I wanted it to be more like a radio show, more like a mixtape, something where if you were a time, if you imagine a time lapse and you're starting your day and, and ending your day, it's sort of taking you on this musical journey. And, 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 and like I think most people, I like lots of different kinds of records. And yeah. so when you listen to the radio, when you're on a driving down that highway or motorway or whatever, and you're with your, you know, partner or your friends and whatever, and you're playing records, you, you tend to sort of, you know, depending on the mood and the time of day, whatever, you're playing different things. So this record is sort of a mixture of, of lots of different things that I love. And so it's much more eclectic. Um, and in a certain way, it's kind of like, you know, it, it, it starts, so, you know, in a more sort of slightly more, you know, it's mellower and it builds and it takes you through guilty pleasures. And, you know, so there's a bit of Americana, there's a bit of harder, there's a bit of more, you know, guitar, there's more ambient, there's more electronic, there's hip hop, da 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 da. And it's sort of put together like a more like a mixtape. You know? So, I mean, it sounds like what a, what a colorful palette. And, and what about emotionally? I think, I think most of the emotion, which is very much prevalent in, in records right now, but I think it's always been there is, why, what's going on, where are we? You know, a lot of the conversations that were being had in the studio were about where we are in the world today. Mm. And not as an overtly political thing, but in the sense of, you know, I come from a generation that's pre-social media, it's pre-computers taking over your lives. Yeah, we all do, yeah. And so a lot of, a lot of those conversations would be having whether it was people my own age older or younger asking those opinions where do you fit in what do you think about where we're at you know and trying to find yourself within that I think that's what most of this record's about is about where am, where are we where do where do I fit in mm. into all of this stuff you know and is there an answer at the end? I, I don't think there's ever an answer. Unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. keep asking you know, the question. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But, you know, That's it's very much you know, it's uh, just a lot of topics about whether you know, you know, I have a, 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 a daughter who's you know in her early twenties. Some of my friends might be having you were having children right then, or you know, you'd have somebody like maybe like an Elliot who would be in at the time you know being their you know being in her early twenties through to you're dealing with somebody like a Lanigan who is older than me or whatever you know just to pet you know, and, but the the reoccurring thing was this constant thing of like, what the fuck's going on? Where, who, who are, who, what are we? What, what are you? What do you care about? You know. Hmm. And so it's not trying to be like, you know, right in front of you. Like it's not, you know, a sort of, you know, it's not, you know, it's not. It takes a nation of millions. You know, yeah. It's not one of those kind of records. Yeah. You know, but it is. But I think that. That that most of the themes, if you dig deep, are these sort of constant questions. You know, there's a great song by Leela called "Feel More with Less." You know, hmm. we, we we you know I, as many of my friends I've grown up with, we grew up very you know in a very materialistic thing. You know, and 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 then you're sort of dealing with how to sort of how you know coming away from that and what what things are important in life. And I think that that comes with with age, but it's also coming with the world we live in right now. Mm. What, you know. what things are most important to you in life at the moment? Personally, Family, mm. love, friendship. Love. Basic, base, very, mm. very basic things. I, I think just really mm. trying... I think as, I, as I'm getting older and also because... You know, a lot of things in my life has changed and a lot of my social groups have changed because of the choices I make and the lifestyle I lead. And, mm. and, and, and actually really that sort of thing of 
where who, who your friends what your you know the basic things you know and also just wanting to know that you know that you know what you're doing means something there's more you know I, I'm not as materialistic I, mm. I, I I need meaning in things more than not that I've not ever wanted meaning but I think I question things a lot more yeah and I think that you know my my friendships in life because I've met a lot of people in my life as you do when you you are in this industry at times and yeah and you wake up sometimes you know I, I made a major lifestyle change in the last couple of years and moved you know to a, a much quieter part of London and I'm not so in you know in the environment so that I love so much you know before so I've had a big change and that's mm. that's been interesting sometimes hard you know I, I can imagine yeah um, but then with that you realize that you start Realizing what, who the people around you, who really cares about you, who doesn't, you yeah, know, what, mm. it's it's kind of typical stuff, really. I yeah, think. You, I, yeah. I, I've got I've got to share this thing, this thought uh, 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 that I've had. Um, See, love, you only have to look at Mo Wax to know that it's all driven by love. And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to encapsulate that by saying that I, and, and with the caveat that I hardly ever go on Facebook. I went on Facebook like years ago, a few years, I can't remember, a few, quite a few years ago. And, uh, and I went and I did this very splurgy post. I think it was round about the time when we first met up. And you came on XFM with me and we did a whole like three hour Moax special. And I basically went on my Facebook, on my private Facebook, and I went, you know what? Out of all of the labels in my whole life, this is my favorite label. And I'm meeting the guy that, you know, and I just I, I just fucking love Moax. And then and, and I, it was a very emotional sort of splurgy post, as I'm prone to do. And then. On, and then I look on my timeline, you know, maybe minutes or hours later, and Ed Chemical goes, it really pisses me off when people go, Moax is the greatest label. How about this? Now about Stacks? Now about, you know, Motown? No, no, no. And it's like, no, Ed, you've missed it. You've, you've missed the point. It's not just about the, you know, sales or the music or the, the, the artists or whatever. It was, for me, about the collecting and about the train spotting. And it was about the fact that you take any song that you put out and there would be different artwork on the 12 inch and different artwork on the 10 inch and different artwork on the 7 inch and different artwork on the fucking CD it was like it was just this like you could see that whoever was, was behind it there was so much love because why would you do that unless because it it's all costs way more than you than if you're making money out of something it's like secret garden party i always knew that we'd be kindred spirits because i could see that mo wax was powered by nothing but love and and it is you know it's funny because it is the central theme to my work but it's not what most people think about with my work and you know going back to the conversation we had about shadow or any of these things you know it's always driven by love and but unfortunately love can be you know can be incredibly powerful and can be very destructive absolutely um, and so but I uh, that is what has driven me for every single thing I've done is an absolute is about love and whether it's an obsession with the person I'm working with and the love for them or the love for what is being created or whatever and it's that is fundamentally the most important thing that we have as people and and what we have to give and what is what you know what I love about great work is when is that love within it, but that can be also incredibly 
difficult and painful. Yeah. Amen you know. to that, James Lavelle. Well, if you, if, this is a hard question, but can you pinpoint the, the tune that you love the most on your new record? Oh, that's not fair. It's <laughs> <laughs> like getting between children. Let me put this another way. Let me put this another way. Okay, what do you think is the record that would inspire the most amount of love in the listener? Oh wow! Oh my God! It's really important. It's really impossible because so, you know I, I'm, they're all collaborative records, and I'm sort of trying to pinpoint one person's okay. thing out of all of that. I think I think that from the conversation that we just talked about, a, a song like "Feel More with Less" is very powerful because it's talking about those things in a weird way. There's a beautiful metaphor for, you know, great. Um, well, so that that, but I wouldn't. It, I don't. It, it's not about one particular no, song being better course, than the no. other. No, 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 I, I love only you that I just released. You know, I think yeah. it's a great, a great song. Um, or I take, you know, I maybe say as an uncle record that I've made recently that isn't, or even on the album, which I'm very, you know, I really love because mm. it's something sonically that I've been with somebody that I've been wanting to work with for a very long time, and it's very powerful me for me. It's a track called "On My Knees," which I just did for the Roma soundtrack with Michael Kinyuka. Mm. That okay. song is well, something that I've loved to have made. I love that I've made that record. Well, then let's let's play that because so, then there's no favouritism yeah, and no yeah, none of the things yeah, that you're yeah, worried about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, let's play this. Yeah. Trailblazers, James Lavelle. Oh, on my knees. Oh, I can't believe all that I ever prayed. But love would be where I stay. Well, here we are at the end. I knew it was going to be a good one. It's been emotional. And, I mean, looking back on it, James, would, would you have done anything differently? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask I thought that you question. were going to say no. Uh, <laughs> um, it's such yeah, a tapestry. There's, there's a few things, but yeah. that's very personal. So. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. I, think, I think I would have liked to have just taken a breath before I stopped my wax. Hmm. You know. But... You know, life is, you know, it's kind of part of the reason I end up talking in the way that, you know, the, the experiences I'm having now are part of those journeys, you know. Sometimes. I, my, my, you know, it's, it, I think my thing is there are relationships that have been lost that I, I would, have, or would have hoped hadn't been, you know. Mm. Well, there's, you know, it's, it's never too late for those, unless no. they're dead, you know. Yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and yeah. you know, I remember when we, when we first started knocking about and, and, and and I was talking to Josh about something else, and, and, and you guys started talking, um, you know, at that time. Mm. And, and, and it was really lovely seeing you guys sort of come back together. Yeah. Um, so we, we get to the question that we ask everyone, mm. uh, which is that if, when aliens come, and we, we, you visualise a scenario where aliens are kind of doing this uh, survey of, the, of, the, of this uh, solar system, and they're looking at what, planets to get rid of to make way for some mad galactic highway or something um what is the tune that you would pick to uh, save the earth it's the tune to save the world you know what would you what would you play to them in order to, to have them save, save the world. yeah to have them stay their hand you i know? think i mean i think that if you know a record that should be heard by any force in that way to make them stop and think about that would be um what a wonderful world of course 
Of course. And there's those it strings makes me, again. It makes me well up when I think about that record. Yeah. I'd like to say there's two records, because my favourite artist, re- probably my really favourite artist of all time is Marvin Gaye. Mm. And What's Going On, I think, is just probably the greatest record ever made, mm. I think. But... I don't know if it'd be the right thing to play to the aliens to stop well, them blowing up the world. You know, because they them... might just go, yeah, what's going on? Let's just get rid of it. Louis Armstrong, what a wonderful world, is like, you know what, guys? Yeah, let's just save it. <laughs> well, you Marvin Gaye would make them feel sexy. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, what's going on to me is just, I think, I think is... Uh, I think either of those records, but I think actually, in a you know, jokes aside, if it was if I was trying to save the world, I yes. might probably say, well, you know, it's a wonderful world, and it is, you know, yeah. And that record is just one of those. It's like, it's like, it's just so beautiful. It's like silk. It's yeah. like it's there's something that just his voice, everything about it is just perfect. Yeah, but so is. Marvin Gaye. Yeah, of course. <laughs> well, you know what? They still like to quote, to quote uh, William Shakespeare, the wheel has turned full circle. We, playing playing uh, What a Wonderful World by Louis Armstrong, we, we come back, right back to those strings, to yes. your cello yeah, lessons, yeah, yeah. To, your, you to the string arrangements, to the yeah. fact that to what I, you know, one of the things that I love about you know, almost all your remixes and, uh, and productions, it's, that, uh, it's, it's those emotional scraping of strings. Brilliant. So let's end with that. James Lavelle, what an absolute joy it has been to go through thank your you. life. Yeah, thank Good. you, James. My pleasure, man. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Trailblazers. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them blue for me and you. And I think to myself, What a wonderful world. Trailblazers. Deezer. Deezer. Originals.